Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to the episode of From the Ashes. I'm your host, Mark Azula, and I'm sitting here with Harmony Quiker. She's a speaker, a professor at Naropa University, which is where I actually went to grad school, so I'm really honored to have her on, um, and a therapist. So she has a new book coming out, uh, which is called Align, Living and Loving from the True Self, and she has a book that she released before that was a memoir that I will let her share the story of. But Harmony, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you on. Thank you so much, Mark. It's great to be here. Yeah, so we talked earlier in the show, and this is going to be a great one for listeners because it combines spirituality, self-healing, you know, getting into um, kind of your true self and who you are being authentic. It's a theme that keeps coming up again and again during the show and something that people really respond to. So I'm really happy to hear your take on it and also hear your personal story of becoming a more aligned person yourself. Yeah, thank you. I was thinking about it as I was getting ready to talk with you and I was remembering back to this um, moment in my life when I realized that the life I was living was created by a part of me that wasn't the truth of who I am. And I really had to be willing to walk away with what I thought gave me security and stability and create something new for myself in spite of all the fear and all the unknown. Yeah, I can imagine a lot of our listeners are resonating with that statement. Can you can you walk us back? So in this first segment, we talk about the personal story, the from the ashes story. So can you start at the beginning. What's your from the ashes story? Yeah, so the beginning, um, it actually goes back to being an infant. Um, all the way back. All the way back. If you want to go back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a a really like a near fatal fall as an infant. And um, I, my parents had put me on the top bunk of a bed and they went to a party and um, I rolled over and fell down um, onto the ground. And I didn't know it obviously because I was a baby, but it really shaped my attachment style and how I how I thought I needed to be in the world in order to gain security and connection, which was essentially don't reach for anybody, don't want for anything. Mm-hmm. And so I, I grew up to be really accommodating and pleasing and needless. Um, and it earned me a lot of praise and approval and people really liked that about me. And, you know, both of my parents were healers and they were really progressive and, Um, powerful, really powerful forces in the world in the 80s when I was growing up. And um, and so so I I had a sense that there was more to me. My mom had taken me to um, study transcendental meditation when I was six. And I actually really started a deep practice. I'm a Capricorn, so I was very rigorous in my practice. And I contacted a part of myself that was deeper and truer at a really young age. And I, I heard from deep within that all of this pain has meaning, that all of this pain has a purpose. And again, I didn't know what that message really meant for me in the greater scheme of my life, but I could feel the truth and the resonance of it deep inside of myself. And I had, I had this practice as a home base to come back to, even when my patterns were about being accommodating and pleasing and earning safety. I would come back to this place within myself throughout my life. Um, And then, you know, I went to graduate school and two weeks after I graduated, my mom suddenly passed away. And it seemed like all of my inner resources, all of my practices, all of the knowing that I thought I had cultivated just disappeared. And I was in a vacuum of grief. And I was really searching for something that would give me stability, something that would anchor me into this world. Um, 
And at the age of 27, I got married. I thought that that was, that was the solution. And, um, you know, it's really, I look back and I have like a lot of tenderness for that young one of me, the 27 year old, um, because there was this way that I, I thought that in order to keep that stability, I needed to continue to play small, to continue to give, to get, and to earn my worth by not needing anything. And it really created a dynamic in my marriage that was um, really destructive for my spirit and for my soul and for the family that I was creating at the time. Um, And, you know, nobody told me this before I had children, but I learned um, that giving birth to a child really births a new paradigm within ourselves also. And so I had two children and um, everything inside of me that I had been ignoring, my shadow, my pain, my desire, everything that I had been um, ignoring sort of bubbled up to the surface, calling for my attention, like screaming for my attention. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I've met this um, this woman who lives here in Boulder, well, in hygiene, right outside of Boulder. Um, she's a Zen chaplain. And her wisdom and her presence reminded me of this place that I had anchored into as a six-year-old in my transcendental meditation practice that I had forgotten about as I'd been consumed by my grief. And um, the more I looked at the pain that I was holding and the the shadow that I was ignoring, I realized that I needed to leave my marriage and leave this sort of false sense of stability and security um, that I thought I was getting from this other person um, and that I needed to rebuild my life, even though I had no idea what that meant or how I would afford it. Yeah, so I'm curious, it's a great story. You know, as, as therapists, we talk a lot about how our childhood creates these patterns and these prisons that we kind of get stuck into. I'm curious the connection that you draw between the way you were raised or the inst- you know, the incident with the bunk bed and how that creates some toxic patterns in your marriage and in your life. Yeah, um, you know, it was, it was in large part because of the fall. Um, and I've learned over the years that it was also in large part because of my sibling dynamic. You know, we hear a lot about how our relationships with our parents shape us, but I had an older sibling who, um, who really took her pain out on me. And I believed that I was the source of her pain. And so I was really shaped in that sibling relationship to, um, to cater to my older sibling while simultaneously having this like pre-verbal pattern inside of me um, that held this, excuse me, that held this message. It's not safe to reach out and ask for help and not having any way to say that I'm in pain. So every time I had emotional pain, I would just sort of hold on to it and hide it. Yeah. It sounds really lonely, Mm -hmm. right? Just to kind of keep everything inside. and, And I'd imagine you're probably good at convincing people that everything was fine, right? That you were happy, you were high performing, you were, everything was good. Don't, don't look over here. Don't look underneath the rock. Exactly. And it was extremely lonely to have people think that they knew me, but to really have the truth of my experience and my opinions and my desires to be so hidden and cloaked, even from myself. I was so good at convincing everybody else that I was okay. I actually convinced myself of that too. And I, I actually believed it um, until I was overcome with postpartum depression and anxiety. It's like, I couldn't ignore it anymore. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? What was the rock bottom wake up moment? When did all this come crumbling down? Yeah. I mean, it started after the birth of my first child um, where I, I couldn't quite see that I was projecting the fear of my own near-death experience onto her 
when she was a baby, like just wanting to protect her, watching her breathe at night. You know, I developed insomnia. Um, but honestly, it was when I saw the way that my ex-husband treated her, I realized how he was treating me. I couldn't see it, you know, just based on what was happening between him and I, like I could endure it. But when I saw it happening to my daughter too, um, I couldn't, I couldn't stand for it anymore. So, um, you know, we certainly tried our best to find our way through that situation together, but I was sitting in meditation. My, my practice at the time was <clears throat> to sit for two hours a day to like, to sit until like there was just spaciousness and clarity. And I remember it was towards the end of this two hour sit where I just, I could see the distortion that I had moved from that created this sort of matrix of my life. And when I was in contact with myself, with my actual self, um, that matrix was no longer appealing to me. <clears throat> it was, I didn't even want to try to find my way through. I just wanted to walk away. And <clears throat> every step of the way, like in the transition after the divorce, um, was like every step that I took was a, a spiritual practice for me of learning to trust myself, where I had put so much of my attention on um, looking for my stability and my value from other people. I was, you know, I did this complete switch where I was now trying to discover it within myself and to create a secure connection with myself rather than looking to other people for it, for that security. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, Awesome. I mean, that's part of the work, you know, is learning how to be your own secure attachment figure. That's what I'm hearing you talk about through that lens. I'm curious from the spiritual lens, the spiritual place you talk about, you know, we've talked about um, in the show before, you know, this kind of observer place, you know, some people have brought in things from DBT, this idea of like wise mind, the higher self. Um, I'm curious for you, how you conceptualize having that kind of spiritual anchor. Yeah. You know, the way I conceptualize it, um, really goes back to the moment of conception, which, you know, before, before conception, I have this sense of how my spirit was easily resting in universal bliss and oneness and feeling completely safe and, and connected to life and life force. And at the moment of conception, you know, babies are boundaryless. And so, here, here I was held inside my mom's womb, like taking in her energy, her emotions, the transgenerational patterns and the imprint of, of everything that she was holding and bringing that with, with me into my birth. And, and in that sort of innocence of, of being a newborn, looking to my parents to provide that safety and that love and that security for me, in my attachment wounds, really making them God, like looking to them as the source of life and my value. And then in those patterns, bringing that with me into my relationships later on, where ultimately those strategies of being accommodating and pleasing were my way of trying to earn God from other people or earn love from God who were other people in my life. And so much of the, healing for me is coming back to that anchor inside of myself where I'm giving that to myself, where I'm honoring what I want, seeing my pain, holding myself, keeping myself safe, setting actual clean, clear boundaries, and, and trusting that if I am in that alignment with the core of who I am, moving from my home base, that, that life doesn't need to be controlled, that I can see what wants to happen that my only job is to really move from that place and know what that place is inside of me. I love the way you put that. And I think that's, it's such a great message. And what I'm hearing in you is that the spiritual practice is anchor. It's an active process. It's not like a passive process. It's not something to be taken for granted. It's a, it's a daily practice and creates meaningful action in your life. It acts as a compass. Is that, am I correct in that? 
Absolutely. I love the way you just said that. It's an active process It's and it's ongoing and learning how to do it in real time, like sitting alone on our meditation cushion and anchoring into the truth of who we are. I don't want to say that it's always easy, but it's easier than when our attachment wounds and our patterned ways of being are activated in intimacy or at work or with our parents. Absolutely. Right. Like I do a lot of work in my practice with like ethics and honor. And those things only matter when they're tested. Mm. It's the one thing to sit and like write your values down on a piece of paper. It's not a thing to really be, you know, look corruption in the eye and say no. Yeah, absolutely. I think about alignment as very simply when our thoughts and our feelings and our actions are congruent with the truth of who we are. Yeah, yeah. So how did you find more alignment, right? You're kind of on the climb up. You had this realization, this dark moment. You went through the divorce. How did you start to build yourself back? Did you do any spiritual practice or do you go into therapy or do any, you know, retreats or, or ritual? Like what, what helped to bring you back? Yeah. Um, I did a lot of therapy and actually a lot of breath work is one of my sort of anchoring practices to remind me how to differentiate from my pain body and my wounds, um, and to really drop into my own energy cycle. Um, but the one workshop that I did after my divorce that really helped me was actually um, in authentic relating. So really learning um, through an integral lens how to um, both speak what was true for me and learn how to see that there's threads of truth in what everybody's saying, but without allowing other people's opinions to inform how I feel myself. And so the thing that I actually love about that integral practice is that it gave me sort of this playground with people who I wasn't in intimate partnership with, who weren't my family, who were just, you know, people in community to discover the language of my true voice. Um, you know, it was in that practice too, where I, I could finally own that I was manipulative, that my strategies of being accommodating and pleasing was actually a manipulation of the environment. And that was humbling. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't done the um, authentic relating, but I've done a lot of process group work and I run process groups a lot in my practice too. Something we'll dive into, I think more in that second segment, but I'm curious um, in this moment before we move to commercial break, if you can tell people what a typical interaction might look like in authentic relating group. Yeah. So um, yeah. Yeah. So we, we, we gather in a circle under a context where we're all agreeing that for a certain amount of time, we're going to own our experience. And so that is using language that's inarguable, um, where we're mitigating for projections and, and that sort of thing, where we're welcoming everything. So we're welcoming everything that's arising inside of us, everything that's arising inside the group as a whole, and we're sharing impact. We're letting other people know how we feel to be in their presence. That's great. So we're going to move into our commercial break. When we get back, we'll talk more about that practice, um, more about the spiritual practice and breath work that you've done. And this idea of alignment and getting and shedding the pain body is something that's really interesting to me. And I think is really timely, you know, with the pandemic and the great resignation and all that kind of stuff that's happening. So listeners, thank you much for joining in and we'll catch you on the other side of the commercial. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. 
This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C, dash, azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, dot, teachable.com. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to the show. I'm sitting here with Harmony Quiker, and we're talking about alignment and moving beyond pain, avoidant attachment style and trauma into intimacy, connection and love. So my ears pricked up when you said the pain body. Um, I read about that in Eckhart Tolle's work. And it's something that he says that, you know, when people are in a lot of pain, one, they're not really aware of it because it's their whole world. It's their whole perception. It's their whole life. And two, it kind of like bleeds out into the people and things around them. And creates a place of somebody that is in pain will in some ways bring more pain and misery into their lives and kind of infect other people. And he also mentioned in his book, which was something that was true for me, is as you do more healing, you can start to see people's pain bodies more and more clear. And that was a big, uh, maybe spiritual moment. I'm still trying to figure out what my spirituality is. But spiritual, at the very least, emotional therapeutic moment for me was actually getting that almost second sight of seeing the pain that people walk around with. I'm curious what your experience was around the pain body. Yeah. um, I like the way you just put that because for me, you know, I was sharing how I fell when I was five months old and I couldn't see that I was clinging to my pain body, almost like a dog to a bone. Like if I cling to this pain, um, I will find a way to never experience it ever again while unknowingly continuing to perpetuate it constantly. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. And so much of the work, you know, like with breath work and and with therapy is to differentiate from the pain body, to know that that's not who we really are, to see our pain body clearly for ourselves and, you know, ultimately seeing other people's clearly also. But I believe the first step is really seeing our own clearly so that we can get some space from it right? The more space we put around something, the more we elevate our consciousness to that thing. And so, um, so yeah, so I, yeah, I sort of lost the thread of your question, I think there, but. Well, let me ask it this way. Can you tell us a story about breath work and how you became aware of the pain body in that space? Was Mm -hmm. it like a physical sensation? Was it a, a mental, emotional, like Yeah, um, it was all of the above. So in breath work, we're really dropping into our breath. And, you know, my mom was a breath worker. So I started doing breath work when I was five. And um, I've been trained in it, you know, to, to hold space as a breath worker. But we're dropping into an energy cycle where the self cleaning mechanism of our breath sort of clears our energy body. And so for me, as I was learning how to really trust my breath and to really drop in and let the breath breathe me rather than efforting my breath, I could see the way that my mind kept turning towards my pain, like clinging to it. And so in that exploration, instead of that, I decided to just bring breath to it and to just keep bringing breath and life and vital energy to the pain body. And in that process, um, I started the practice of differentiating from my pain body. It wasn't that it was something that I've done once and, and now I've differentiated from it. Like you said before, it's an active practice. So for example, in my current marriage, if I notice my attachment wound, you know, start bubbling up and telling me a narrative, 
that's part of my pain body. And I'm now in the practice of bringing loving awareness to that part of myself um, to one, differentiate from my attachment wound and to two, to give myself the love that that part of me really needs. Yeah, I think we were saying it's really critical, this idea of anchoring in the part of you that does have love for yourself, that is a confident human, right? That does want to attach and be intimate. You know, to giving another example to our listeners here, I've had a similar experience where, and it still happens today to some extent, is when I go back to visit my family, I regress as a psychological word for kind of going back in time. And I literally feel heavier, like fatter than I am. I feel clumsy. My thoughts are kind of like sluggish. I'm not as quick. I'm not as, as witty. And when I was a kid, one of my survival strategies was to kind of keep myself small and just really hide a lot. And I only really feel that when I'm back in that situation. But it was something that I need to do a lot of healing in, in my life out here to become more aware of. Because just like what you were saying, that was my whole life. I didn't have another point of reference to be able to be like, oh, wow, I don't have to feel this way all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I love that too, that the, the practice about going home and, and having a new experience of yourself after doing the work here. Um, I, I've been surprised at how in my, my second marriage that um, there's a way in which my husband is very similar to my father and the matrix seems like it could be the same. So my young one can very easily make up a story that, um, that I, I shouldn't reach out, that I should just be self-sufficient and okay. You know, he's busy. Um, and to instead like turn towards myself and, and differentiate from that pain and try something new takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of awareness to not just let that old pattern run its story. Absolutely. And I think it takes a lot of love as well to really love that younger part of you and want the best for her of like, Hey, if, if I was her parent, I would encourage her to go out there and ask for help or, you know, put forth her need for attention or, or engage or whatever the thing is, you know? Yeah. A lot of love. And, and I, I'd add like a lot of self-trust too, you know, like if, if he's not there and he doesn't want to connect in the way I want to, I'm going to be okay. And to really know that for myself, that I can hold myself in that. Right. Not take things too personally and be like, it's okay. Like I didn't get what I wanted, but I'm still an adult and I can figure this out. <laughs> totally. Which, you know, it doesn't always feel like that in the moment. And I think for people that have a lot of this stuff unconscious, it can feel like there's no other option. There's no other way out. It has to be this or nothing. Yeah. And, and that really gets to identifying with the pain body, identifying with the attachment wound. Like when we think that that's the only way, we're sort of looking at the world through the lens of our pain rather than looking through the lens of our wholeness or the lens of our essence. Yeah. So you talked about alignment and I might probably will butcher your description. So please, you know, correct me, but you said something on the lines of where your thoughts, emotions, and actions align with who you truly are. Am I hearing that correct? Yeah. When, when our thinking and our feeling and our actions are congruent with who we really are. Yeah. So can you just like double click and expand on this point of who we truly are? Because I think it's something, and I'm guilty of it, a lot of therapists, we throw this around, it's like, oh, you know, be yourself, find your true self, you know, look deep within yourself. But for a lot of people, and for me too, I assume for you, that was hard. It was a really hard process. And when I first started doing this work, I didn't know who I truly was. I didn't even know what that meant. I was like, I don't know. I, I, I like video games. You know, like I didn't, I didn't know anything about that at all. So I'm curious, any tips you might have or what that process would like for you of finding the true self, what that, what that really looks like? Yeah. Um, well, I like what you said here first, because I think that knowing who we truly are first takes knowing who we truly aren't. So what the world has taught us about ourselves, the misbeliefs that we have about ourselves, the adaptive survival strategies that we created, you know, as children, um, and the condition patterns that we sort of habitually walk around the world with can seem just like being alive, the water we're swimming in, right? And so being really clear on, on those sort of imprints and those patterns and habits is essential in discovering our essential self. Um, the way that I experience um, who I really am is really my connection with vital force 
with life force energy, like untouched by the experience of life. If life force energy is flowing through me and, um, there's nothing preventing or like thwarting my energy or distorting my energy, then I am in alignment with who I really am. And so, you know, like right now in my chest, I can feel like a little sort of tension in my heart. And so in the real time practice is really just noticing that without resisting it or even making up a story about why or that I should be different in any way to just welcome that and, just kind of make room and breathe and let that flow through. Like any sensation that we have in our body is life expressing through us. And if there's a, a point of tension in our body, it's like life is getting caught inside of us. And so to, to stay current with life, um, I believe that it's important to create an atmosphere where life can continually move through us. And, and that's essentially our true nature is being one with life itself. I really like that. And I don't think anyone has put it in that way before. I'm hearing like a deal of fluidity, of flexibility, of kind of being a an open channel for life. Exactly. Um, maybe a little bit of a selfish question. Something I'm working on in my life is is mobility, like literally just becoming physically unbound and noticing that you know, doing this job, I got pretty, pretty dex bound and pretty like sedentary lifestyle. And back when I was in grad school at Naropa, I was doing a ton of yoga. And I remember feeling just so much more alive. And I think part of that was was having healthier. But part of that was also what you're talking about, of just having more internal space and a very visceral level for experience. Is that a little bit what you're talking about? Absolutely. Spaciousness is essential, right? It's like the spaciousness around the pain body, the spaciousness around any stagnant patterns, like either mental stagnancies, physical stagnancies, energetic, like to create space around it so that those stagnancies can move. Yeah. 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 What would you recommend to somebody who is just starting on that path? I think the, the simplest practice is to really notice where your breath gets caught. Where, where does your breath naturally want to move and where does it stop up? And so if you can titrate between noticing where your breath just naturally moves in your body and just not trying to push past, just let it move where it wants to go and then drop the exhale. Every time you drop the exhale and you let go just a little bit more, you create some more spaciousness. That's a great practice. So I want to change gears a little bit. We talked about this during our break. You mentioned that you are, you've been remarried. And what is it like being in a relationship with all these lessons that you've learned? It's really dreamy, quite honestly. It's, <laughs> it's, um, it's like my soul had been longing for this experience in intimacy for my entire life. And my mind wasn't quite sure that I would ever find it. And, um, Honestly, each day feels like a dream to be with a partner who has awareness and capacity and desire to grow, um, who will receive feedback from me and give me feedback, be a mirror for me and have me be a mirror for him. Um, and to really practice being physical in a way together where we stay in our own channel of energy and co-regulate and give to the other and receive from the other in this really sweet conscious dance of relationship. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I think it's so rare to find a healthy relationship out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we certainly have never had this modeled for us so we're learning as we go, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, can you say more about this co-regulation thing? Because I, yeah, I think it can be codependency on one side and just complete avoidance and you know suppression on the other. Where's that middle sweet spot? Yeah, absolutely. The middle sweet spot has really been about having the practice of connecting with ourselves first and to be able to hold ourselves in our attachment wounds, in our own dysregulation and ask for what we want and like set a context of how we want to be together. Um, so for example, if he, if I'm asking him to hold me and he, and I'm the receiver and he's giving to me, the, the work in that time is for me to actually learn how to receive, right? And his job at that time is to really listen to my essence and to my being and to my body and to just be present with me. And we go back and forth 
in that practice. And um, yeah, a, a lot shifts just at the very subtle level, just in being with one another in that way. Yeah, I can take a page out of your book. I, I'm also a avoidantly attached Capricorn. So <laughs> receiving is the hardest thing for me. I'm very, very good at taking care of. I'm very good at producing, at like charging forward discipline, like you mentioned before. But like receiving? No, absolutely not. Yeah, I love knowing that about you, Mark, that you're also a Capricorn. And it is, receiving is really vulnerable. It can be really edgy. It's really scary because what if it's hurtful, right? What's opening up and it doesn't work, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and there's a part of me that judges or pushes away reception. And I had that, an idea, maybe similar to one you did, of I can take care of myself the best out of anyone in the world. Mm -hmm. So letting someone else, my first resistance is disappointment. I'm like, oh, you're not. Like, I could do this better for me. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? And that's just, a, it's just a way to push away and, and not be vulnerable, you know? Yeah. And that's why the practice of connecting to ourselves first is so important to know that we've got ourselves and we can open. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great duality. Mm -hmm. So we're going to move into our next commercial break here. When we come back, we'll talk about some practical tips or advice or practices that people can take to find more alignment and more connection in their life. It's been a great conversation so far. And for those listening, hang on in there. And we'll see you on the other side of the commercial break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit Mark dash azulay dot teachable dot com that's mark m a r c dash azulay a z o u l a y dot teachable dot com voice america programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Are you ready to move to your next level? Listen for Empowering Women, Transforming Lives with host Rebecca Hall Greider. Each show will focus on a central topic with discussion, guests, and your questions being featured. Our show is perfect for women who feel a call in their heart to step out in a bigger, more powerful way in their life and just need some encouragement, inspiration, and practical steps to support them on their journey. Empowering Women, Transforming Lives can be heard live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel with a replay of the show Sunday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. 
Welcome back to our final segment here. Harmony, I was looking at your website and you and you mentioned something called an alignment map, which I can imagine will be very useful for some of the clients that work with you. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's, what's on that map? Yeah, so the way that um, I've mapped out our alignment is really, as I said before, starting with what pulls us out of alignment and becoming aware of that. And the way that I see it, and I've, I've honestly, I've learned this from watching my clients. I've learned this all from my, my clients where um, when a person is identified with their condition pattern, their thoughts, their ego, and are actively disowning any part of themselves, it creates a line of what I call distortion. And when we move through the world from the line of distortion, we can be trying to do the right thing, to do what we think would be the right effort to put forth, but everything kind of still ends up a little wonky. You know, people might say like, I keep doing, I'm reading all the books, I'm doing all of the things, but nothing is really going my way. And I believe that that's really because they're still identified with their line of distortion. And the way that to, the way out of that map is to differentiate from our conditioned self, to know that that's not who we really are, that reality doesn't live in our mind, that our condition patterns aren't truth. They're simply familiar. And claiming any part of our shadow that we have disowned, any part of ourselves that we've rejected or tried to push away to really claim that. And that really helps to bring us back closer to our home base of the midline of our being. And so this alignment map sort of has a quiz for people to have this inquiry about, are they, are they off balance? Have they left their home base and, um, and offers, you know, practices of how to claim, claim your shadow, which is actually pretty challenging because our shadow is innately in our blind spot. So it can be really hard to see, you know? Um, and so there's, there's certain ways to really find what's in our shadow. And I think that the easiest way is to see what we're assigning to other people. So if we have, if we're shining all of the, the light and all of our attention onto somebody else, whatever we're seeing in them that we think might be wrong is actually what's in our own shadow. It's a mirror for us to see ourselves. Yeah, that's a great little tool. And it's something that if the listeners out there, if you can integrate into the way you see the world, it can be kind of, I mean, a mind fuck, right? To just be like, whoa, what stories am I making up about other people? And I think a place like, like a group um, or like the authentic relating practice that you've done, um, tea groups, anything like that, can be a really powerful practice to start to check out those assumptions about other people and then take a slice of humble pie and realize how wrong we can really be, you know, how our mind does fill in all these gaps about people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And on the other side of that too, the assumptions we have about ourselves, like, oh, I couldn't actually ever say this thing that is true for me right? People might not like me or go away and to really challenge our perceptions about ourself like that too. It's, it's, it's intense. Yeah. Yeah. It brings me back to, I had a moment in one of my early groups, um, actually at Naropa uh, run by Jeff Price, who, who you may know. Um, and he like, I was in early recovery and I was telling all these stories about, you know, getting really messed up and like, you know, sleeping with random people and waking up blacked out somewhere else and doing all this stuff. And Truly in myself, I was seeking compassion and connection and wanting people to be like, oh my God, that's so awful. You know, how can I help you? But the feedback I got from the group was that I was disgusting to other people, that I was actually pushing them away. And that moment of just like mind bending reality where two things crashed together woke me up to be like, whoa, I am not in reality. I don't know the impact I'm having on other people. And in fact, this just shows me one way of how I keep people at a distance and how I, I'm not getting my needs met because I'm not, one, I'm not clear about them. And two, I'm, don't, I'm not introspective enough to be strategic about the way that I talk about myself. You know? Absolutely. And this is where having a mirror, having people reflect for us is so essential. You know, not being able to see ourselves own clearly is just part of human nature. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And it all goes to that shadow that, that you talked about, right? That's like, it's unconscious and often painful. And I want to say for people, and I'm curious your thoughts on this too, is that when people think of the word shadow, they often think of like evil, like the dark evil parts of us. But I've seen in my work, 
that it's also pain. It's also grief. It can also be sometimes joy is in people's shadow and, and pleasure. Um, I'm curious what you kind of see as a shadow in, in people. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the most common shadow I actually see is where people push their desire into their shadow. Mm -hmm. And when desire is disowned, it actually comes out as criticism and control. And so the conditioned pattern is to try to control life or to criticize other people without actually looking, what is it that I really want? Because that is so far disowned and people have a really hard time actually asking for what they want. I know, big time, exactly. right? Especially in couples. I mean, when you talking about earlier about the fact you can communicate your needs to your partner, I just want to like double underline and circle that because so many people, I, I can fall into this too, expect their loved one particularly to be a mind reader, to be like, oh, you should know, right? Or a common one's like, I want you to want me or I want you to do this stuff, right? Like all these games around not being able to name what's actually going on and hoping that people just kind of yeah, mind readers, right? Pick up on, on what's going on. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's so disconnecting, right? Like a point of contact happens where two people are really clear and clean on their desire. When I ask for what I want and my, my husband says either yes or no, we can actually contact one another in that in a really clean and loving way and navigate that moment of relationship together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also egocentric, which is something that group also helped me is that, how do I say this? Like when I'm having an emotional experience, right? When I am upset about something, it's so ever present from my perspective that I think it's undeniable that I think that everybody can pick up on it. But also I'm avoiding that Capricorn, like we talked about. So I'm actually just like smiling and laughing and like, I'm not showing that at all to people. And then I get even more upset because they're not picking up on my feelings. And I'm very stuck in my own head of thinking that everybody is feeling and thinking the same way I am and not seeing those other people as fully complex emotional beings in their own right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is a really sort of young strategy, you know, like young ones don't have boundaries. And so we think that everybody feels what we feel. We're feeling what everybody else feels, you know, and not differentiated. At all, right? right? Yeah, and and kids, they do like crying to try to just blast the emotion into, right, their their caregiver of like, I'm feeling upset. I'm going to do this thing that will make you upset, so that we're having the same emotional experience. Yeah, communicate through projective identification, inducing feelings into the caregivers, and and unfortunately, that's actually what adults commonly do in relationship. I see it with the couples that I work with when one person or either person isn't able to ask for what they want or to actually feel their own feeling and to be with what's happening inside of them. They unconsciously induce that into their partner through their it's actions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you have an example of that? Maybe from a case to just make it real for listeners? I mean, I have an example from my own life. Oh, there you go. That <laughs> also works. Yeah. And, and I have my husband's permission to use this. I've asked him cause I use it often. Um, when we first got together, um, he was asking me, do I put the, what do you do with the water bottles? They were sitting on the side of the sink. And I said, we put the metal ones in the dishwasher. We hand wash the plastic ones. The next day I opened the clean dishwasher and all of the water bottles, including the plastic ones were at the bottom of the dishwasher. So I opened it and I said, the water bottles, they're in the dishwasher. And he got really angry. He said, yeah, I put them in there because I didn't know what to do with them. And he kind of yelled at me and I had already explained induction to him. And so I just slowed down and I said, I'm feeling really scared right now. And he said, you know, that makes sense to me because I was feeling scared when you saw the water bottles. I thought you were going to yell at me because in my family of origin, people valued things over human connection. And so it was a moment where projective identification was actually used, you know, consciously. That's so a that great example. Thank you. Yeah, right. Oh, sorry, I, I cut you off. Are you going to say something there? No, it's fine. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, just to, the idea of that, that fear is what was pervasive. And he was acting defensively because he assumed that that would be your outcome, right? That you were going to yell at him. He was like, I'm going to yell first. I'm going to get there first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> Instead of feeling his own fear, I'm the one that felt it for us. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's great. That's great. So talking about this kind of egocentric thing, one thing you mentioned during the break is that you have a process for people that are stuck in looping thoughts. 
Can you say more about that and share that process in our final minutes here? Yeah. Um, you know, when our mind is looping in like a theme of thoughts, particularly about another person, um, it can seem as if there's no way out, right? The thoughts just keep going and going and can keep us up at night um, and really pull us off balance. And so the first step in um, really moving through that is to just notice that the mind is looping and be curious about the theme, like what is really happening here? Not the content, but the theme of what is being expressed to the mind. Cause the mind is really important. What pulls the attention of the mind has value. It's more about not identifying with it and believing it. So being curious about what the mind is thinking actually shifts us more into our creative brain. And once we're curious about the theme of our thoughts, um, we can, the second step is to notice the emotion that's underneath them. So when we have an emotion that we aren't feeling, the mind starts looping. And so it's sort of coming backwards, back into ourselves from the mind downwards, a, a top-down process. <clears throat> and once we notice um, the feeling that we have, we can make room for the emotion and also be curious if, if this is old, if this is a familiar feeling that actually predates the situation and really turn towards our inner young one and give ourselves the thing that is really needed, you know, beneath the thought, like keep going deeper and deeper into contact with ourselves. That's great. That's really helpful. And I think it both nurtures mindfulness and this idea of connecting with the younger self and developing that self-love. So yeah. hopefully listeners, you can get something out of that and practice um, connecting because looping thoughts is something, a complaint I hear all the time with people, people get really stuck in their own heads. So Harmony, we have to start to wrap up now. I've really enjoyed having you on the show. It's been fantastic. I think you've done a fantastic job of taking these complex, spiritual, transpersonal, psychological ideas and distilling them down into ways that people can understand them. And I'd be curious if you want to learn more about you, where can they find you out there? Yeah, so um, you can find me at uh, thespirituallyaligned.com. It's my website for both coaches and therapists and people looking for coaches and therapists. So um, I'm... I've uh, started a, a training institute called the Institute for Spiritual Alignment, um, where I'm training coaches and therapists how to bridge the divide between traditional and spiritual forms of healing. And I also have two books on Amazon. Um, one is Reveal, Embody the True Self Beyond Trauma and Conditioning, which is really my story of transformation. And my second book is going to be out December 1st of this year, Align, Living and Loving from the True Self. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining. Um, listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star review on Amazon, not Amazon, on Apple iTunes. That's important. We're trying to build those up, um, share on social media, promote it, get out there. Um, all your support has been so helpful in getting the show off the ground. It's become something pretty impressive. So thank you so much for tuning in and we'll catch you next week on another episode of From the Ashes. Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet triumph and defeat and treat those two imposters the same.